0: What must have been like for Abraham to be the friend of God? Now certainly uh, there have been friends of God from that point forward. Abraham's descendants became a nation known for having a special relationship with God. As we'll learn from King David One of those descendants of Abraham, both physically and spiritually, he certainly walked in a special relationship with God. A friend is someone who is going to have your best interest in mind. Abraham could trust that God's plan was best. And as I mentioned, his relationship with God becomes the, the tip of the iceberg for what all of God's people from that point forward could look forward to. Friendship means being able to trust someone else. I I uh, had family and friends, having grown up in Knoxville, Tennessee, had family and friends out on the field of Neyland Stadium yesterday uh, in a mob celebration of UT's defeat of Alabama, the Crimson Tide, first time they had defeated them in 15 years in this huge SEC rivalry. Uh, my brother shared pictures of he and his wife down on the field under this huge sea of orange celebration from, from the drone footage of the field after the game. You could barely see the grass for all of the orange shirts. Anybody see that on uh, TV yesterday? And pretty soon came the picture of my nephew uh, at the front of a goalpost walking through the streets on his way to the Tennessee River, where the goalposts, which the mob had torn down uh, for some reason, that was, that was what they were going to do. Let's throw them in the river. I, I tried to look it up. It's not a tradition or anything like that. Um, but, you know, this, this Tennessee-Alabama rivalry goes back a long time. And it goes back. It might even uh, have stemmed from this story that I heard about, about a Tennessee fan and an Alabama fan gets into a massive car accident uh, in an in an intersection. And and though the cars are completely mangled, the two of them step out of the cars completely unharmed. And and they walk up to each other, and the Tennessee fan says to the the Alabama fan, he says, "This is." amazing that neither one of us are hurt. It must be that we are intended to be good friends from this. And so the Crimson Tide fan decides, you know, sure, why not? So they shake hands and the volunteer says, and look at this, my jug of moonshine, you know, because it's East Tennessee, my jug of moonshine is completely unhurt from this accident. This is is amazing. This must only mean that we are to enjoy this moonshine together here. And the Alabama says, fan says, sure, I can I can agree with that. So he takes a couple of big swigs of this moonshine, cleans out his sinuses and everything, and hands it back to the UT volunteer fan. Takes the cork, puts it back on, gives it to him. And, and the Alabama fan takes it back from him and says, what gives? I thought you were going to take something. He says, no, I'll wait until after the cops show up. <laughs> Maybe that's how, why the rivalry goes so far back. A friend is someone that you're supposed to be able to trust. that you don't have to worry they're going to take advantage of you. In this way, Abraham didn't have to worry that God was going to take advantage of him. Even though he was in some pretty precarious situations. What must have been like for Abraham to be the friend of God on the face of the earth at that time? It meant for God to have his back, for God to say in a sense, any friend of Abram is a friend of mine. That was a part of the promise that was made. Anyone who curses you, I will curse. Anyone who blesses you, I will bless, God told Abraham. As a part of that original covenant that God made with Abraham, he told him, you, even though I'm taking you from your family, from your land of the Chaldeans, where is uh, present-day Iraq, and I am going to move you to Canaan, which is present-day Israel, you are going to have a land to call your own. Your descendants, even though you don't have any children and your wife is barren, you are going to have uncalculable descendants over the face of this earth, and you are going to have a land for your descendants as well, and I am going to make your name great, and isn't that what we see in history of Abraham having a great name for the last 4,000 years? In our chapter last week that we looked at involved Abraham's lack of faith, actually, his lack of faith in God's promise, but it ends with his renewed trust. He returns back to the location, returns from Egypt back to the location of his original, original altar of worship. And he lets his nephew, Lot, have a pick of the land, really showing, modeling a trust in God. That God was going to take care of him. And this leads to God reiterating his promise to Abraham and giving greater detail. If you recall from Genesis chapter 13 verses 14 through 16. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So this leads us to chapter 14, which opens with a situation brewing some distance from Abram as he's relaxing in Canaan. And the cities of the region that Lot was living in and the cities around that, they are under the control of a king named Ketolamur. And they serve him for 12 years. So they're paying tribute to this king Ketolamur that is uh, far to the the east. Uh, Not on that map, as you see. But in the 13th year, These peoples that are represented by these cities and the surrounding area, they decide that they are going to rebel and no longer pay tribute, no longer consider themselves to be servants of Ketileomer. And so after 12 years, in that 13 years, they unified enough and they thought that they could rebel against him. And in the 14th year, this is what you were told about in the beginning of chapter 14. And I'm, I'm breezing over it a little bit here. Ketelamer, in the 14th year, decides that these cities, these kings, need to be taught a lesson. This reigning king forms a super army with three other kings to bring the hammer down on these rebellious Cities. Now, and on their way south, as you can see from the blue arrow heading south, as they're going through, they are taking over lands. They are are reaping the harvest of their battle. They travel south along what's called the King's Highway, which is, if you can see the mountain range just to the east of the Dead Sea, it would be an, an elevated area. There, that blue arrow is coming down. And you would so they pass to the east of your red circle there, which is the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Bela, Admah, Zeboiim, Zib- that too, and, and head down to El Paran to the south, following that higher elevation. And on their way back north, they sweep after sweeping through the high country, they move up through the Negev, which is to the south of Canaan where the red arrow there starts heading up north. And this is what brings them to the battle just to the south of the Dead Sea. These five cities that were in rebellion against Ketelamur and his allies, they come out to battle. It's a battle between five kings in a panic and four kings on a roll. And their armies. These five cities include Sodom and Gomorrah, which we will unfortunately learn more about in the coming weeks. But recall, recall that Lot had had when he separated himself from Abram, and Abram told him, "Whichever direction you decide to go, I'll go in the other direction with our flocks." Lot had seen the valley of the Jordan. He had seen the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he decided that's where he wanted to be. He ends up guilty by association and swept away with the others. And we read in verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who is dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. These kings obviously defeated the five kings that have rebelled against them and they looted the cities that they reigned and they took the inhabitants and their wealth So these might seem like minor skirmishes by today's standards but but in Abram's day these would have been huge international events of conflict and a reshuffling of who is in charge and a reiterating of the reign of king Calaeomer. And it's likely that he might have uh, Abraham might have heard of these events and would have preferred to stay out of it completely. But we read in verse 13 of of Genesis 14, then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram, these people that he lists. And we'll learn from these statements that Abram did have allies that he had aligned himself with. And they will come back up at the end of the chapter as well. And so this escapee from the battle comes and lets Abram know what has happened. Abram must have been a pretty big name in the area by now for this person to come and specifically let him know what has gone on. We read about in verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken, this speaking of Lot, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as dan and we can you so you can see the green arrow heading north is going to meet up with the army of cataleymer to the north of the dead sea so we read in verse 15 and he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to hoba North of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So this victory led Abram into a sort of trial of his faith. We'll see here. And you might be thinking, I'd say the, the decision to have to get involved in this conflict or the pursuit and the battle, that sounds like the trial. And you'd be correct in the sense that these events were trying, these events were challenging. But as often happens, I think Abram's real trial, his real temptation came after the battle was won. I would summarize the principles from Abram's trials with our title here this morning, Walk, Don't Run. Walk, Don't Run. Now that might sound like the uh, screams of a lifeguard At the public pool. But that's not what's meant here. What's meant is walk with the Lord. Don't run after the spoils of conquest. What it looks like in our day and age is follow Jesus as your perfect king priest. We start to see a mysterious person step forward in the next verses. He steps onto the stage... And he recognizes that Abram walks with God because this person somehow is a priest of God, Jehovah, referred to as the Most High God or El Elyon in that day. And his name is Melchizedek. And if you were here a year ago, you learned about Melchizedek from the book of Hebrews side of it, back in Hebrews 7. And we read in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who was, has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, we read, gave him, gave Melchizedek a tenth, Of everything as Abram did I want to challenge you here this morning to walk with God in a relationship of blessing walk with God in a relationship of blessing what Melchizedek recognized is that Abram had been blessed by God and he focused not on the gift he doesn't look and say well I see man look at all this stuff you have you're blessed now he looks at the the victory that Abram had wrought here, and recognizes God has blessed this man. This man with 300 fighting men defeat an army in full momentum, an army of five kings and their armed warriors. And being a priest of the one true God, Melchizedek understands that Jehovah is the ruler of all when he says, God most high possessor of heaven and earth. And being creator, he recognized God as having ownership over all of it. And this would mean that all other gods are cheap imitations. He's not saying, like I said, God must be with you because look at all the stuff you have. He's recognizing that Abram is truly blessed in his knowing God, the giver, not because of the gifts. And you see, like an action hero movie, the results of this international crisis basically came down to the success of this one man. The the whole political balance of probably the next 50 years in that region Was put on the back of Abraham. And I think that Abram had learned from his time in Egypt. To trust God's promise. My name hasn't become great yet. I haven't been given a land yet. I don't have a descendant yet. It must be that God's going to be with me. Because he's going to need to be. If these things are going to become a reality. To Melchizedek. To this Melchizedek says, blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram acknowledges that God is worthy of praise by receiving the blessing from this priest of God most high and offering a tithe, giving a tenth of all of his possessions. This is, quite a, this is what a ministry relationship should look like. Both pastor and parishioner having their eyes on God. Isn't God awesome, they're both saying. One writer says, Abram's encounter with Melchizedek only reinforces his faith that Yahweh gave him this triumph and his tithe to the priest of El Elyon serves as a practical testimony to Abram's humble acknowledgement of his small, undeserved part in God's larger plan, End quote. You know, if you think about some amazing defenses, uh, you know, starting with uh, the Starship Enterprise. I mean, I'm still waiting for Shields you know any any uh spaceship or something that can just say shields up and all of a sudden they're like everything's bouncing off of them right or you know modern day we might uh think of the uh wakanda force field from the avengers movies or those of you that are not into sci-fi think of israel's iron dome you know keeping that that is a missile defense system keeping rockets from from landing near uh critical areas You know, a person being protected from these sort of things, they don't stop and say, I am just too awesome for any of these weapons to touch me. No, they sit there and say, thank goodness for our defense system. They don't sit there and think, man, I must be great. No, they think about how they were protected. And God blesses us. When God blesses us, we bless, we thank, we praise Him. And we might not see how God is blessing us at any given moment, but we should still bless Him. As the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. King David is one of the descendants of Abraham, as I mentioned, both physically and spiritually. And he writes in Psalm 73... Verses 23 through 26, I was actually reading this in my devotions this morning. He writes, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God's very presence, God's very friendship with us is the blessing that we should return. It should be enough for us to stop and say, bless you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord, for your presence with me. As with Abraham, it's all by God's grace. And God provides the relationship and the access through his righteousness for us, just as he did with Abraham. And we do our part by trusting and obeying. Next we see another figure stepping forward in this this meeting here. It's been the king of Salem who also happened to be priest of God Most High. And we'll come back to that. But we also see the king of Sodom. Most of you are familiar with Sodom as being not a good place. So we see, uh, we read in verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, meaning like taking a vow, to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So what we see here is a stark contrast between these two leaders and Abram's response to them. First, we see a contrast in how Abraham is treated. Melchizedek blesses Abram. But the king of Sodom treats him like some sort of mercenary or pirate, kind of like saying, okay, I know you're just in this for the spoil, all right? Just give me my people back, you know, that, that the inhabitants of my city, and you can take all the spoil. So we see a contrast in how Abram is treated by them. And secondly, we see a contrast in how Abram responds. Abram honors the king of Salem, Melchizedek, priest of Most High God, and he ignores the king of Sodom. He honored Melchizedek by tithing to God through him, And he distanced himself and rejected the offer of the booty of war from the king of Sodom. And so like Abram, I want to challenge you, don't run after the spoils of conquest. Don't run after the spoils of conquest. We read in verse 21 through 23, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram King said to the king of Sodom, and notice how he names God the same way that Melchizedek does. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, my God owns it all. And, and I walk with him. Why would I need to worry about keeping any of this? He can give it to me. If he sees that I need it. He goes on to say actually in verse 24. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. And the share of the men who were with me. Let Aner, Eshgal, and Mamre take their share. These are the the allies of Abraham. As we noticed at the beginning of the chapter. It's interesting that that Abram is working under his conviction. But he doesn't say if you're going to roll with me you have to do what I do. I think that's there's some kind of humility there. But Abram trusted God rather than the spoils of war. He put his faith in God rather than putting his faith in money, in material things, in possessions. He really could have come away as a quite this could have been a big win. You know, he could have been a a, a person that really called the shots in Canaan after this. I mean, we already saw that this person that had escaped the battles comes and finds Abram. So he's already one of a great name and and great possessions. He could have just elevated himself even further. I mean, taking the spoils of several cities? He could have become the godfather, the kingmaker, that figure that, that used his influence from that point forward, but as one writer says, the wealth of Egypt had proved a snare. The wealth of Sodom would have been worse. You know, in our present culture, it treats people like a resource. Our culture treats dating relationships like, like people should just be pirates or, mission, or mercenaries men treating women like they're just a conquest you know pillaging and leaving leaving the damage behind i read also about a a young man that that walks up to a a woman and says hi her response is what he says how are you she says do i know you he says i'm rich she says i'm shandy i'm 30 Nice to meet you," he says. "No, Rich is my name." She says, "Sorry, I don't talk to guys I don't know." Our world encourages us to just take what we want from people and move on. It's it, it, it is uh, such that people are playing. I think they're playing a zero sum game. What this means, a zero-sum game, is, for, is thinking that in order for me to win the opposite side, the person that opposes me, they've got to be losing. In order for me to be elevated, they've got to be decreasing. Or vice versa, if, if they are decreasing, it must mean that I'm doing better. And you can see this in our culture, especially politically. The idea being, you know, this can't be a win-win situation. Somebody's got to win, and somebody's got to lose. We don't have to treat life like a zero-sum game because we're, we are to be living for someone else's glory. We are to be winning for someone else's victory, the most important victory and the most of, of the most important person in this universe. We are to be living for God's glory, for God's victory on this earth We can say, I don't need to win this debate with you. I don't need to treat this relationship like we're in some sort of competition. As far as I'm concerned, I've already won in life. Because I walk in a relationship with God. The God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth. The fact is is that earthly spoils are going to spoil. They're not worth it. But what doesn't spoil is what's done for God's glory in Christ. Instead of fighting for our own rights and our own riches, we're called to fight our flesh and follow Christ. And as we're reminded in Philippians 2, this is how we are to follow Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe how Christ, being in the very nature God, did not consider that something that he should hold on to, but instead he humbled himself under God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he took on the mission of the Godhead by becoming a man, and emptied himself and became a man and, and humbled himself even to the point of allowing his creation to kill him on a cross. And we're told to have that attitude. Basically, unless I've had to humble myself a greater distance than he did, I don't have anything to complain about, is what we're told. But we're also told... In Hebrews and Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This type of acknowledgement and relationship of surrender is what it means to follow Jesus. And how amazing that we get to follow the one who has been highly exalted above every ruler, above every nation, above every kingdom, that every king and kingdom that has ever existed is going to bow their knee to him. You say, but J.D., where does Jesus show up in our passage? Well, if you were here a year ago and we learned about what Melchizedek was all about in the book of Hebrews, he shows up, we know, in that Melchizedek is Jesus' predecessor. Because Jesus, in order to be our great high priest, needed to be our king priest. Just as Melchizedek was a king priest, king of Salem and priest of God Most High. There was a little bit of a dilemma in Hebrews. If you recall, I'm not going to go too far into this. I don't want to explain this situation from the Hebrews angle. But the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to explain how Jesus is our great high priest. But the reader sitting there going, but Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. The priests had to come through the tribe of Levi. Not just that, but how can he be our high priest when he comes and he ends the sacrificial system in the temple so the writer of the book of Hebrews explains a deeper truth a more a deeper history a a a history that predates the law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood he refers back to a man named Melchizedek who was both king of Salem and priest of God most high and he refers back to the situation where do you not remember that our father, our big dog of our nation, Abraham, Melchizedek was greater than him. But he blessed Abraham. And, and Hebrews explains how the, the greater always blesses the lesser. And Abraham paid tithes through Melchizedek. And so from this, I want you to pick up, follow Jesus. You can follow Jesus as your perfect king, priest. This situation that Hebrews was referring back to talks about how Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. What's also, as I mentioned, what's strange about Melchizedek here is he's obviously superior to Abram. Being that he blesses Abram and Abram pays a tithe to him but nothing is known about him prior to this moment or after this moment for centuries i mean in he in the book of genesis if anybody is anybody their genealogy is explained all of genesis chapter 11 is explaining how abraham came from noah and and all dating all the way back to adam but here this person this this Exalted individual, Melchizedek, steps on the scene and he is obviously greater than Abraham. And genealogy wise, it says it seems like he had no end or no beginning. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he was, was some sort of supernatural figure. But it's saying we don't know anything else about him except for this moment. But then he's brought back up in Psalm 110. We read in Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, this is a coronation psalm, sit at my hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the Holy Spirit inspires the psalmist to write about this, and it's like, Melchizedek? Nothing has been said about him since Genesis 14. But this coronation psalm is meant to look ahead to the coming Messiah that would be our king-priest. And the priestly order is mentioned here because it is outside. It predates the Levitical priesthood, the, the tribe of Levi, that the Mosaic law would have centered around. Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. He represented God to Abraham by extending God's blessings to him. And he also represented Abraham to God by receiving his offering, a tenth of his wealth. So from Hebrews, we understand Jesus is our great high priest representing God for us. And representing us to God. Quoting what, was Psalm, what Psalm 110 says about the coming Messiah. We read this in Hebrews. You might recall this. Hebrews 5 verses 5 through 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. But was appointed by him who said to him. Being God the Father. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We also learn that we can have confidence because Jesus made a final offering for our sins as our great high priest. We learn from Hebrews 6 verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. That enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So our hope extends into that eternal sanctuary that where Jesus offered himself. As it says in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is our final great high priest because he serves after this order of Melchizedek. This high priest that was greater even than the forefather of the nation of Israel. As our perfect king priest, Jesus is the God most high possessor of heaven and earth himself. He did the saving work for us that only God could do. Think of Jesus' disciples following him, a ragtag bunch. Basically, they were rabbi rejects. Nobody else wanted them. But Jesus picks them up. And and he teaches them how to serve by serving and serving them. And even in his final night with them, having uh, loved them to the end, as John 13 tells us. He says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. We are able to be friends of God through Jesus, our great high priest. How do you follow Jesus as your perfect king priest? You trust him. You trust him. You trust your eternal salvation with Him. You trust your family to His designs for the Christian home. You don't chase after the spoils of that promotion. You don't chase after the spoils of material things. You trust Jesus. As Abraham did, you walk with God in a relationship of blessing. You don't run after the spoils of conquest. And we also follow Jesus by obeying him as we remember his sacrifice. He is our, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. And that is our hope that enters into that heavenly inner place behind us the curtain, the heavenly holy of holies where Jesus has gone and offered his own blood. But you know what he was good enough to do? He was good enough to offer it here on earth in his crucifixion. He was good enough to spill human blood, his human blood, As the God-man. He was good enough. To allow his body. To be crushed. To be broken. To be pierced. To be injured. So that we could look upon. That empty cross. And remember what was done on it. He calls us. To remember his sacrifice. Mike is going to come up. And we're going to take communion by households or individual, as normal, anyone is welcome who knows Christ, has trusted Christ as your Savior. Anyone is welcome to take communion. I want to encourage you during the first song that Mike plays to just meditate on what Christ needed to do but gladly did for us in order to become our great high priest, with an offering to bring. And that offering was in his own blood and the breaking of his own body, represented in the bread and in the juice. Let's bow our heads. Gracious God, Thank you for giving us a great high priest. Thank you, Lord, for authorizing the sacrifice of your son. Jesus, thank you that even though in that garden, when you wanted that cup to pass, from you when you wanted there to possibly be another way you submitted yourself to God's will and told him not what I want but what you want Father thank you Jesus for following through on your awesome plan Lord as we take this communion I pray, Lord God, that it would remind us of the gratefulness that we should have, not for what you have given, but because of our relationship with the giver that we are able to have through Christ. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.